0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from our website, BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. This podcast is brought to you by the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. The DVBIA supports, promotes, and represents the shared interests of 7,000 businesses and property owners in the central 90 block area of Vancouver's downtown core. Today on the show, could BC finally be getting ride-hailing services? My co-host, Tyler Orton, will speak to the CEO of Cater about that on our latest Asia 360 segment, the economic and political implications of China's growth slowdown. We end the show with a look at what the latest federal budget means from an investment perspective with the CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada coming up next week that you won't want to miss. We're looking at real estate as part of our brand new event series, BIV Talks. Coming up on Tuesday, March 26th, we've assembled a panel to walk you through how to survive Greater Vancouver's real estate slump. You can register now and get more information at biv.com slash events. The conventional banking business has undergone rapid technological change in the last decade, as have many industries. We're going to explore what this means. On April 25th, BIV's Business Excellence Series is back with a panel discussion on the next big things in banking and finance. Our discussion will explore the future of banking and finance, the policy changes of this landscape, the impacts for incumbent companies as well as the opportunities for upstarts for tickets and information visit biv.com slash bes-banking-finance
1: okay so we know vancouver is unique you know we've got beautiful mountains it's often one of the top ranked cities in the world and it's also unique in that it's the largest city in North America with no ride-hailing services available. The provincial governments, I guess you could say they've been a little bit opaque about its plans to allow these services in BC, but it appears that one made-in-BC company will be getting a bit of a start ahead of the big incumbents. And with us to explain how it's all going to work, it's Scott Larson. He's the CEO of Cater. Scott, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah,
2: thanks so much. I appreciate it the opportunity. So
1: tell us, what is Cater? I think that's what a lot of people are asking right now.
2: Cater is a, a Vancouver tech company, and we're building and launching BC's first ride-hailing app, launching here towards the end of March, and then uh, scaling out from there.
1: Okay, so how exactly is this model going to work here? Because I think a lot of people you know maybe they've traveled to other cities and tested out ride hailing there but i think for the most part british columbians probably haven't been exposed to it
2: yeah the app is going to work like most people are familiar with which is you open up the app you enter your destination uh, it knows where you are of course you request a car you can track when the driver is arriving in 5 minutes and 4 minutes and 3 minutes and so forth uh, you get in all the payments are handled through the app it's it's very predictable and and from a service standpoint it's 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 easy to use i think the Uh, the customer experience is going to be something that people are pretty familiar with from uh, perhaps other times have used similar services in the past. So we don't really know when ride hailing, as I think we assume
1: it to be with regards to Uber and Lyft, when it's going to be hitting British Columbia. But when is Cater going to be
2: hitting the roads here? So uh, we're launching uh, end of March. So over the next couple of weeks, and then uh, we have we have the ability to put 140 cars on the road, and so we'll launch in a bit of a beta program, and then and then we'll scale up to all 140 cars over the over the next few weeks. After that, so when you say putting cars on the road, are these like you would find like an
1: Uber driver or a Lyft driver? You're hopping into somebody else's personal vehicle, or how does it work for you guys?
2: So these are our cars. So we went out, we bought uh, 140 of our own cars. They're all hybrids, and uh, these are our drivers. Our 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 drivers that we've recruited, sourced, trained, put into our cars. These are these are our cars, but you can only call them through the app. Uh, so you can't flag them down from the street corner. These are only available through our app.
1: Okay, and I'm curious. I mean, if somebody jumps into one of these vehicles, I mean, are they going to be paying? You know, what you would expect based on what the app says. How does the payment uh, you know process work? And maybe how much could we expect to pay for this?
2: Given the current environment, uh, the current regulatory framework that we have here, these these. Um, The pricing is the same as taxis. So when you enter your destination, the app does a bit of a calculation and it says it'll be between fourteen and seventeen dollars based on traffic and green lights, red lights, and so forth. And so it give you a bit of a range. And then as you as you get to your destination, it knows exactly what it is. It's all paid through the app, of course. So the uh so the pricing is um is the same as what you'd pay in a taxi. On the other hand, there's no surge pricing. So Friday evening, Saturday evenings when things when things are pretty busy. Uh, The rates don't double or triple based on on demand. It's the same price.
1: So do you think that if you look at Vancouver on a Friday or Saturday night, if you're downtown, it's always a scramble to get into a taxi? How do you guys come in and maybe address some of the issues that have been ongoing within the transportation sector here?
2: That's a good question. I think everybody knows that we need some solutions here in Vancouver, particularly in the downtown core, people who want to go from downtown out to some of the suburbs perhaps. Uh you know, there's stories of people not being able to get taxi rides because they have to come back empty and so forth. Once a ride has been assigned through our app to a driver, they can't refuse it. So we'll we'll take anywhere within BC, so to speak. Uh going across the border is a little trickier, but we'll take anywhere within BC. Uh everybody knows that we need more 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 cars we need more more options we need a better solution particularly for peak times in the city i think as you get a little further out to the suburbs maybe the demand is a little different but uh, we think being able to launch with a service that uh, uh, meets that demand um, has a good customer experience we think it's needed and we're we're excited about being part of it.
1: Well, I hope uh, the customers tip well if you make them take <laughs> a ferry ride across, uh, you know, to Victoria or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see on that. But uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, uh, maybe some critics are saying you guys are getting a bit of an unfair advantage because the big incumbents they don't have kind of the opportunity to come in, build up these, you know, networks of drivers, build up kind of uh, your own kind of. Name here before they're able to come in under whatever rules we're going to eventually see.
2: I don't know. How do you respond to that particular uh, critique? I think it'd probably be a little bit unfair to say that a small startup based here in Vancouver has an unfair advantage over some of these other other companies in the industry that are worth in the tens of billions of dollars and have virtually unlimited resources. i I think that's. I think that that would be a bit of a stretch. What we have been able to do is uh, structure a few relationships, get these licenses through the Vancouver Taxi Association, and actually get on the road much faster. I think if if other companies could have done it, and and uh, they would have, in fact, and, and and I I think that's probably a fair statement. I can't comment on their business practices. All I know is that um, we're excited about being able to get on the road, build up some local knowledge, start to offer the service uh, that we think Vancouver needs. And then we'll look to see what the future holds when when the legislation is rolled out later this fall. We're excited about being part of it. Uh, we think it's going to open up a little bit. We we obviously welcome that for sure. And um, uh, we'll certainly participate in it.
1: So how's the business model going to be working for you guys? Because it is different from, say, the you know more familiar ride-hailing services. You guys are going to have 140 cars. How
2: are you confident that this business model is going to be applicable and it's going to work here in British Columbia? We think we've been able to put together something that combines the best of, of, of both models actually uh, where the drivers are trained you know who they are you know they have a certain amount of background checks and so forth uh, which is a little bit unique perhaps in the taxi industry cameras inside perhaps a different attention to safety and and so forth both driver and passenger which is which is an issue these days obviously uh, and then and then take uh, add to that some of the flexibility and most importantly some of the predictability that people know through a an app, know exactly when they when the car is going to arrive and, and put together that kind of service offering. Um, if we can do that right, and I believe we can, the demand will far exceed our supply and the business model works.
1: I guess my last question for you is uh, you guys are recruiting your own driver base here. Um, has that been a challenge? Because you do require these class four licenses, which most people do not have.
2: It hasn't been a challenge, to be honest. Um, I've heard that, I've heard that story and we've heard that reports. We have over 900 applicants uh, right now, which which far exceeds our, our need. Uh, we we're, we're, we're basically take those people, put them through screenings, background checks, and so forth. As, a, as I mentioned, uh, the number of drivers has not been a challenge. Uh, obviously, we're a startup and we've got all kinds of other operational things that we're working through. But actually, driver applicants is not. Okay. Well, as we wrap up here, anything else you want people to know about Cater ahead of your launch? And we're excited about it. I think, uh, what we're asking people to do now, if they want to be part of the beta, is to go to cater.com. Uh, they can sign up to be part of it over the next couple of days. Uh, we, we, we ask them a few questions where they live, where they work, how many times a week they're going to be taking cars and so forth, perhaps. And then, uh, we're going to be, uh, uh, pulling from that pool of people to To be part of the initial users for the launch and end of March, early April, and then and then we'll scale up from there. So, uh, we we'll look forward to it, and and uh, we we'll look forward to growing with it.
1: Well, very interesting, Scott. I want to thank you for joining us on the pro- program today.
2: Thanks, Tyler. I appreciate it.
1: That's Scott Larson, CEO of Cater. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this.
0: Every other week, we take a deeper look at the economics, policies, issues, and politics of the world's fastest-growing region in our Asia 360 segment. Today, we're taking a look at what China's economic slowdown means for the Asia-Pacific. With me, Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. Thanks for joining me.
3: Uh, thank you.
0: Give me a sense of how significant China's slowdown is at the broad 30,000-foot level.
3: Sure. Uh, There's a couple ways to think about this. Uh, One is that China is facing some some pretty significant domestic constraints on its economy. Uh, When you look, for example, at the performance of its stock market over the last year, uh, it was by far the worst performing major economy stock market in the world. Uh, We're seeing a slowdown in manufacturing, a slowdown in the real estate sector. Uh, By some estimates, about one-fifth of Chinese um, apartments are actually empty. So we're seeing an overcapacity within that that specific sector that has pretty significant implications for for China's um, overall manufacturing, construction, and real estate sectors. Uh, We're seeing um, a slowdown in in trade, and in some instances, a collapse in outbound investment, probably for the first time on record. So some pretty significant um, events happening within the domestic context. Uh, however, when we look at projections from the World Bank or internal projections from Chinese leadership about what they expect growth to look like for 2019, we're still looking at about 62 to 6.5%, which means that even you know adjusted for some of the inflated statistics that we tend to see come out of, of China, especially at the provincial level, means that China is still growing probably about 3% or three times faster uh, than other major economies in the world. So a slowdown in relative terms.
0: Still very, very quick pace of growth. How concerned should countries around the world be, though, about even a a drop in what has been a very fast pace?
3: Well, so there's a couple ways to answer that question, too. Of course, (laughs) China is a really important driver for regional growth in the Asia-Pacific, in particular. um, It's many of the Asian state's uh, largest trading partners and one of the most important sources of foreign direct investment. Uh, Its loans are increasingly important, particularly for development projects uh, that wouldn't necessarily be adopted by the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank, but that China's willing to finance for reasons that have political implications as well. But um So that's very important. A slowdown in China could have effects on in particularly some of the advanced economies like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. If there's a drop in demand for cell phones in China, that will d- directly affect their semiconductor um, manufacturing. So th- there's significant implications. That said, China's also not, at least uh, in terms of its broader kind of fiscal um, policy and f- fiscal uh, indicators, integrated in the global economy to the degree where it could disrupt uh, like the United States did in the 1920s and with the the global financial crisis.
0: Interesting. What have we heard from Beijing on this topic and about how China may handle this?
3: Well, so I think um, we've seen some major speeches and particularly around the two uh, meetings that were just, uh, I think, last week or the week before uh, the National People's Congress, a lot of talk about how to manage the economy going forward. Uh, At this point, Beijing has opted to pass on introducing another major stimulus to the economy through uh, providing uh, additional um, funding, uh, which it did in 2008 in response to the global financial crisis and was actually able to kind of weather that storm better than other major economies because of the stimulus that it provided. This time, it's not looking to do that directly. What Beijing has talked about is actually providing tax cuts to many Chinese so that they could actually increase consumer demand for domestic goods and drive the economy through consumption rather than um, export-driven model or or around construction. So it's a, a shift of paradigm to a degree.
0: You saying that made me think of U.S. corporate tax cuts, and I'm curious whether a measure like that may shift the balance of power from an economic perspective if we see a measure like that in China.
3: I think, uh, you know, China has a lot of fiscal tools that it can use to stimulate its economy. If it does look at uh, lowering corporate taxes, I think that could have a spur on the economy. Uh, China has a a pretty good control over some of the major industries within China because of its control of state-owned enterprises. It can also increase things like demand and supply in ways that other countries can't because of its industrial policy. So yeah, it has a lot of options for sure.
0: The rate at which China is growing, whether it was before the slowdown or even with it, it hasn't really seemed sustainable. It is very high. We see economies grow and then they start to mature and slow down. Sure was this always set to come? And is it necessarily a bad thing? Was it? Could we have seen it coming? What's sort of the point at which China finds itself today? And what's maybe causing part of this?
3: So China is uh, just one of actually many Asian countries that have adopted this kind of approach to development. So we saw it in Taiwan, we saw it with South, South Korea, we saw it with Japan, a very concerted industrial, state-driven industrial policy around the export sector. It allows for high growth in the short term. And then once you you hit that kind of middle income, they call it the middle income trap, uh, it becomes more difficult to introduce a sustainable model of economic development into the country. And that's where countries like Japan have run up against decades of stagnation or slow growth. So China runs that risk. However, China is also really proven a, a, a tough case study for a lot of economists to get their head around because in many ways it's been able to avoid some of the pitfalls that we would have assumed that it would have faced because they've been proactive in setting their monetary policy, because they've been proactive in using state-owned enterprises to, like I said earlier, to, to shape their domestic economic demand and supply cycles. So uh, China is, is really charting a path that we haven't seen before, and if any country could think of a, a creative way to continue with at least, you know, somewhat high levels of growth, maybe not 6% going forward, um, it's certainly China.
0: Mm-hmm. When we talk about this from an economic perspective, it seems we also have to maybe consider it from a political perspective as well. What are some of the political implications of this slowdown?
3: Well, so um, there's the domestic context and then there's the foreign policy context. Um, In terms of domestic politics, Chinese uh, um, leaders have always prioritized economic development over pretty much anything else because of the implications it has for single-party legitimacy, for the stability of Chinese society. And they understand that um, economic growth is directly tied to the Communist Party's ability to stay in power. Mm. So there's there's that understanding. Uh, In particular, they're concerned around issues of unemployment and labor unrest, which we do see at isolated localized areas across China and have for some time. Typically, however, the Chinese Communist Party is seen as a solution to those problems rather than being the cause of those problems. So that paradigm is really important and something to keep in mind. Most Chinese citizens still look to the state to provide answers rather than look to the state as the larger villains within an economic downturn. So uh, another interesting thing about the slowing of Chinese uh, economic growth in terms of GDP and and percentage of, of growth While China is growing at 6.2 to 6.5% right now, its growth has actually become much more um, productive. And we're seeing uh, more bang for the buck, if you will, in terms of economic growth. So where in the 1990s and early 2000s, you growing at the high single digits or low double digits, China was producing maybe 15 million jobs a year. Now it can do that with the lower growth because of efficiency, because of productivity it increases across the domestic uh, um, manufacturing and other domestic industries.
0: Are there any potential consequences or impacts as a result of this for China's, say, political image within the broader region or around the world?
3: Well, so an important, um, an important talking point of, of Chinese leadership for the last couple of years is that China has developed this new model of, of economic development that while distinct to China and has Chinese characteristics, is something that developing countries throughout the rest of the world could emulate or could seek to apply to their own circumstances, their own domestic circumstances. So if China does have a period of of prolonged slowdown in growth or if it does have a major domestic um, economic meltdown There's going to be huge implications for its image in the developing world uh, outside of Asia, all the way to Africa, to Latin America, where it is seen as offering an alternative model to to the United States in particular. So this idea of the Beijing consensus versus the Washington consensus, it somewhat fell off about five years ago where analysts were saying, hey, we really are seeing a new model. And it's picked up in the last probably 12 months, particularly as as President Xi Jinping has come forward and said, hey, you know what, China does actually have a lot to teach other, other countries. Uh, in particular, the way that we manage our economy.
0: Mm, interesting. So, would you say a lot hinges on perhaps the continued success of this Beijing model? Is that is I? That the you conclusion? know, well, one of
3: the, the the core components of the Beijing model is that it's adaptive. So, mm. where they see the need to alter course or change, they will. They're not. Um, really wedded to a, sp- a certain economic dogma, a certain economic paradigm that, that they're going to pursue at all costs, where you do see that to a degree in the United States, this over-reliance on market forces to determine you know, the allocation of goods. China understands the, the market's very important, but it also has an internal identity around controlling very key levers of the domestic economy, and it will alter courses as, as need be.
0: Could we see as a result of this, China perhaps open itself up, open its markets up a little bit more to the rest of the world?
3: I would imagine we'd see the exact opposite, where China actually looks at some of the market influences that it's allowed to play in its domestic economy and says, okay, those are actually in the short term uh, sources of instability or un- or unpredictability a- around the way that we can develop. So I would see more of a move towards state control over the domestic economy in the short term with the understanding that the long term would be getting China back on track and then reintroducing those market uh, forces for the sake of productivity and efficiency.
0: As we wrap up, I'm thinking from the perspective of a country like Canada that has been in economic and trade talks with China, we're looking at diversifying within the region. What should Canada be keeping in mind as we see a Chinese slowdown, as potentially we see China withdraw a little bit from the rest of the world?
3: I think uh, for Canada in particular, looking at this, uh, the slowdown in China and understanding, okay, while the domestic concerns are there for China, Uh, the opportunities for Canada haven't gone away. Mm. Uh, And in particular, some of the the dynamics of the trade relationships are actually swinging in Canada's favor. So for example, uh, Canada imports a lot more from China than it actually exports to China. So the price of Chinese goods potentially could go down as China tries to become more competitive in a global market. That would benefit Canadian consumers. Um, significantly. Mm -hmm. China's demand for things like liquid natural gas won't go away either. Uh, Neither will the the, uh, demand in China for increased inputs of high technology um, goods and high technology research and development, for example, that Canada has and can bring to that relationship. Those won't disappear either. And in particular, as China is looking to move up the, uh, um, the ladder in terms of its value add and its production, Canada can be a significant partner going forward in things around manufacturing, advanced manufacturing, uh, artificial intelligence, as we talked about before, the mm-hmm. clean tech, um, things around water, um, sanitation, those kind of things, bringing services and best practices to that relationship. So it's not a, a horrible situation for Canada at all.
0: Jeff, as always, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. That's Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. The federal government tabled this week its final budget before our election later this year. In it, $22.8 billion in new spending, housing, healthcare, skills training, seniors, and Indigenous services and support were all focuses in the budget. Notably, the Liberals ditched their original promise to balance the budget. The estimated deficit this year is $19.8 billion. Joining me now to talk further about the budget and to get his thoughts on it is the president and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. Ian Russell has joined the show before. He happened to be in Ottawa earlier this week for the budget lockup. He joins me now on the line. Ian, thanks for coming on the show.
4: Oh, hi, Haley, Pleasure to be here.
0: Tell me, what are your thoughts on what was tabled yesterday?
4: Uh, real disappointment, um, although, um, you know, you've, you've echoed some of the Points that um, I think have been uh, consistent uh, over the last um, three or four budgets. I guess uh, Mourno's given four budgets. And in other words, we have been concerned about the fact that uh, we've seen this ramp up in deficits and expanding debt levels. Um, and a case can be made for uh, expanding deficits. But uh, the problem here is that there is no plan and there is no uh, disciplined containment of uh, of those deficits or the debt burden. In, in other words, there's really no target that's been put on, uh, on uh, deficits and the growth of debt. Um, and in particular with the deficits, a, a plan to bring them down or even a plan if you hold them at a certain level and eventually bring them down to a balanced budget Uh, and they came close to it. They could have done it actually this year um, very quickly um, and uh, decided uh, to open up the spill gates. And similarly with that, um, no clear target on how much debt they're prepared to uh, uh, build up. So that's, that's one area. And the other thing that's been very disappointing over the years and it's consistent this year is there is not a focus on really plans to actually put in place policies that grow the economy. I think our view in the budget, if you really want to help the middle class, uh, you should be focused primarily on trying to help business expand its operations, create jobs. And that means um, encouraging companies to invest in Canada, encouraging Canadians to save. And uh, those kinds of incentives we're not in this past budget and haven't been for a number of years.
0: When it comes to those kinds of policies that help grow the economy and incentivize businesses to invest and expand, what were you hoping to see or what are some examples that could have right. been in the budget?
4: Well, two things. One is I think you, what business is looking for is a positive signal. I think everybody recognizes you can't change uh, direction um, quickly. It's going to take some time, but I think... You know, Business, both Canadian business and uh, offshore business, offshore investors, um, looking for a signal that this government is serious about putting in place um, measures to uh, grow the economy. And a signal would have been, in fact, uh, focusing on uh, fiscal targets or um, dealing with um, the eroding competitiveness of our tax rates Or putting in place um, incentives, other kinds of incentives to encourage um, investment, especially among small businesses, looking at innovative ways to channel private sector savings and capital into infrastructure spending. Um, You know, the the two steps would be one is uh, the need for a signal, a message. And the second part is the substance of it, which is... um, start to put in place these kinds of policies, and um, um, we haven't seen either of them put in place, and um, it's 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 very disappointing, I think, in this budget, uh, particularly because they had much more fiscal room um, this year. Uh, they were, in fact, um, running um, basically a balanced budget through most of the year because revenues were way higher than they expected. And uh, rather than opting either to use some of it to um, uh, reduce the deficit for the year, which they could have easily done, or use it to lower tax rates, um, not just to gain for business, but also for individuals to help uh, individual Canadians save more, save more for their retirement and and just save generally more. And uh, none of that was done. Um, and I guess the third um, leg in that stool, um, other than sort of tax rates and um, and incentives, is uh, providing a little more um, room on the pension front, uh, a little more uh, scope for Canadians to save more for their retirement. Uh, they're living longer; they have inadequate savings. So um, whether it be in terms of greater contribution limits um, on their RRSPs or the other one is just uh, increase the age of eligibility for uh, RRSPs beyond 71. But none of that was done.
0: In the absence of a clear signal, as you put it, what do you think the message is to either foreign investors, foreign businesses or even local investors in businesses? What's government saying?
4: Well, it's, it's the, the, the message that is being conveyed is there doesn't seem to be any real interest in improving the business climate in Canada to encourage investment and um, the expansion or of business, of existing businesses or building new businesses. And you see that reflected in the fact that we, um, the uh, business investment numbers are falling. They've been falling really over the last four or five years. And uh, You also are now seeing uh, a very substantial capital flows out of the country, both uh, foreign investors. We saw that mainly around uh, the sale of um, corporate energy assets, but um, you're also seeing it uh, in terms of foreigners selling other assets and certainly not bringing capital into Canada. They just have other places to go that are more attractive, and we're seeing Canadian capital. Um, move out of uh, the country. Um, so, um, you know, that's not uh, a good sign because um, sustained growth um, really depends on um, capital formation and business investment. And what is even worse in the current environment is that uh, consumers are over leveraged, uh, consumption spending is been uh, falling and um, residential construction in particular, and you're seeing that certainly in Ontario and I think across the country. Um, And uh, so that's taking uh, some of the um, strength out of the economy. So I think we're in for a period of uh, uh, continued um, weakness in the Canadian economy. I mean, the latest numbers have not been very promising, so I think it'll probably get worse um, over the course of the next year or so and certainly this budget has been has done nothing to uh, improve the business climate in fact uh, it's probably just been a, a negative and discouraging it. in
0: fact looking at this budget it revised downward slightly real GDP growth expectations for this year and it looks like over the yeah. next five years that growth is going to come in under two percent. Yep. How are we going to feel this? How are we potentially going to see this in the Canadian economy?
4: Well, um, what we'll we'll see is that um, the unemployment rate will start to go up. Um, job opportunities will not be growing as quickly, especially for um, skilled uh, workers. And um, we're... Um, not going to see foreign businesses coming to canada um to build um uh businesses um and there is still this uncertainty hanging over the free trade deal i mean one of the advantages we always had was canada was a great place to uh set up a business and you had the access into the u.s there's uncertainties around that as well so i think we'll see it just in terms of um um rising unemployment um continued frustration in um finding employment opportunities especially for the more skilled and um uh just a, a sluggish economy and incomes um of average canadians uh, certainly not uh, expanding and growing um the way that we have seen in the past so it's um I think we're in for a, uh, a difficult period now. I don't want to overly stretch it. It's uh, we're still going to see positive growth. We're not likely to see a recession, but as you point out, uh, the growth forecasts of, uh, are going to be in that one percent range somewhere. So uh, over the next few years, for sure. So um, and we're going to, you know, if um, current trends continue, we'll just see a further buildup in debt, and that's going to put more pressure on uh, finances, and maybe we'll see even higher uh, tax rates. So this process will just um, accumulate and feed back on itself and um, um, it further weaken the uh, the um, economic outlook.
0: I mentioned you were in the lockup yesterday. I was watching online, and you couldn't even hear Finance Minister Bill Morneau deliver his budget speech over MPs. Making a lot of noise, of course, tied to the SNC-Lavalin affair yeah. and the controversy yeah. that, that expanded yesterday. What was the atmosphere like? We're talking a lot about signals and leadership, and I'm curious to get your take on what we're maybe seeing on that side of things.
4: Yeah, well, I, um, I think increasingly it was looked at more and more or less of a budget of real substance or a, a budget that had a clear strategic vision or a plan to simply a uh, catch-all. Um of odds and ends um that were more designed to be good feel kind of um uh measures that were so you'd say it was increasingly more thought of as a uh, a pre election budget but as I say, I think the core here is that there there wasn't any real plan there didn't see there doesn't seem to be any Um, strategic focus around um, the fiscal measures. It was literally a catch-all of many, many different uh, programs, um, as you said at the beginning, from uh, labor training to housing to um, some uh, measures that were dealing with with, uh, pensions. And there were some that were good, for example, on the pension front, Um, you know, uh, better protections for workplace pensions when companies go into bankruptcy. So that was that was positive. Some positive things on anti-money laundering, which is a big problem in Canada, a very big one in B.C. Um, But again, even there, there were some things that were positive, uh, an effort by the federal government to increase coordination among uh, all the law enforcement agencies and all the governments in the country to coordinate their approach to uh, to dealing with money laundering, and they put more money into FinTrack. But as a case in point, two things that we really had been encouraging Ottawa to do is um, one of them is a central registry for um, beneficial ownership. So working together to... Uh, to create uh, this um, central um, registry to make it easier for um, reporters to uh, file these um, transactions, what we define as suspicious transactions. Mm. If you had a central registry where you, you could look up who the beneficial owners are in these private companies, it would be very helpful. The other thing that we, we know is a problem in Canada are there are gaps in the reporting regime there are entities out there particularly in the non-financial area that um um receive uh, monies financial through f- financial transactions that um uh are not uh reported and uh so these are gaps in the money laundering uh, uh defenses and uh we um it, it, ottawa should be addressing it and uh uh, we've made those recommendations, the host finance committee has, but they weren't in the budget. I don't know why mm.
0: We were in an election year, of course. You mentioned some of the priorities around policy that the association has. I'm curious what happens next. Do a lot of these policy areas essentially get put on hold during the campaign, or perhaps are you hoping to see them addressed in the various campaigns from different parties? What are you looking forward to over the next nine months? Yeah,
4: it's a good question. I'm not looking for much of a constructive debate over um, uh, pro-business, pro-investment economic policies, I I guess, for two reasons. I think there are going to be other issues that are elevated. You mentioned some of the more topical uh, political issues. um, And um, I think maybe some of the more bread and butter issues, uh, maybe around things like people get concerned about transportation issues. And uh, um, although I think you know uh or just sort of everyday issues that might consume sort of the electorate but not these uh uh really important and, and more complicated uh uh policy issues so um that's usually not those aren't the things that elections are fought over uh i mean we yeah. have had elections that dealt with things like free trade i i again that might be there, but I think everybody's in favor of free trade the the current government will probably uh quite rightly i guess take benefit for uh, putting together the uh the nafta uh, 2 trade deal um but i don't think the election is is going to be fought over um policy issues uh or policy approaches um it'll be fought but probably more over social issues and over political issues and scandals and that kind of thing. That's what I anticipate it's going to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Ian, as always, great to have your thoughts. Thanks for coming on the show.
4: Okay. Well, Haley, always appreciate it. You always ask great questions. <laughs> it's always a pleasure.
0: Thank you. That's Ian Russell, President and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also listen to current episodes, past episodes over at BIV.com slash audio. And of course, for all of our business news, head on over to BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.